Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the Mystic Skeptic Mindspace. In this week's show, our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. He's the Chair of African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's a frequent guest on the following radio shows, Democracy Now! and Connect the Dots, and is a contributor to the Political Affairs magazine. He's also a prolific author. His books include The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Cold War in a Hot Zone, The Deepest South, Black and Brown, Blows Against the Empire, and many more. Our topic today is African-American history, and here at The Mystic and the Skeptic, we pride ourselves in giving people an alternative version of history, not that that history is uh, something that you can um, manipulate, but that there are certain voices that haven't been heard, and the more that I read about Dr. Horn, um, it seems that part of, of his uh, research and the work that he does is um, making people aware of parts of history that are not uh, explored enough by the public. And that's what we would like to um, delve into today and start from the beginning um, regarding the history of African Americans in the U.S. But um, before we start, uh, Dr. Horn, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got interested in history? Well, as you may know, I am of African descent. My parents' roots are in Mississippi, the heart of darkness of both slavery and Jim Crow, but they fled from Mississippi some decades ago to St. Louis, Missouri, where I was born. I grew up in a trade union household. My father was a truck driver, a member of the Teamsters Union, which has a justifiable reputation for organized crime connections. However, in St. Louis, the Teamsters were administered by Social Democrats, such as Harold Gibbons and Ernest Calloway, and so I grew up reading Social Democratic literature from the Teamsters Union, and I also grew up uh, selling newspapers, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the main mainstream newspaper in that town, and uh, I started work as a seven-year-old. And I started reading newspapers as a seven-year-old. Mostly, I have to confess, not the editorial page, but comic strips and sports pages. But I think that that put me on a path that led me to where I am today. You know, there's many topics that, that you can pursue in, in history. And I know that having a strong African-American studies program can help um, people become more aware of their own roots, but also people who are not part of the African-American community, they can take courses and expand their horizons and learn more about about African-American history from an, an African-American perspective. Uh, was it common at that time where African-American history was written by white people and they would portray blacks in a certain way that wasn't true to your experience? Well, I, I think that that's generally accurate. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with history, as I've tried to portray it in my books. The course that North America has taken has not been inevitable. As I tell the story, particularly in my 1776 book, uh, there was a battle 
between the European settler class and the indigenous versus the indigenous population, a good deal of the indigenous population, and the great mass of enslaved Africans for control of North America. Initially, in the 17th century, you had the Africans and the indigenous population, particularly along what is now the eastern seaboard of the United States, the area stretching from uh, what is now Maine in the northeast down to, say, South Carolina in the south. You had the Africans and the indigenous aligning with the Spanish in Florida against the British, English, and Irish settlers. That is one of the many reasons why the Africans have been referred to as, quote, negros, that is to say the Spanish word for black. And, of course, we were oftentimes seen as Spanish agents. And I should also say this is in the context of a religious conflict between Catholic Spain and Protestant Britain. Of course, the Pope was just marking the 499th anniversary of Martin Luther tacking his 95 Thesis on the on the door of the Catholic Church in Germany, what is now Germany, protesting what he considered to be abuses in the Roman Catholic faith. But in any case, as the situation evolves, in the middle of the 18th century, you have the British deciding to eliminate the Catholic threat, so-called, in Florida to the south and in Quebec, administered by France to the north. Uh, Britain is successful, but Britain wants to impose taxes on the settlers, and this is where the traditional narrative kicks in, and the settlers, as has been their tendency for years now, objected to taxes for their benefit, and then they collaborate with the Spanish and the French to kick out the British from what is now the United States of America. And what that leads to, of course, is this. When you fight a war and lose, you should be expected to be pulverized and penalized forevermore. Understandably, the enslaved Africans did not side with their slave masters, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry. Uh, they sided with London, which, by the way, in June 1772, had taken steps towards abolition of slavery in Somerset's case, at least abolition of slavery in England. And uh, there was a regnant fear on this side of the Atlantic that that decision would migrate across the Atlantic, jeopardizing fortunes based upon enslaved labor. Also, London was reluctant to continue moving west, taking the land of the Native Americans. And in the so-called Royal Proclamation of 1763, London had said, had, had tried to put up barriers to the settlers moving west, coming into confrontation with the Native Americans over their land. And that did not go down very well either with the settlers, giving them more reason and impetus to kick out London. And therefore, uh, I challenge the traditional narrative of the United States, which portrays the founding United States as some sort of great leap forward for humanity. Certainly it was a great leap forward for Europeans many of whom were rescued from the barbarism and poverty of Europe, but that came at the expense of the land of the Native Americans and the labor of the Africans. 
And that is one of the many reasons you can draw a straight line from those events in the 18th century to, say, the trial in South Carolina, where a white police officer is on trial for, on tape, shooting a fleeing black man, Walter Scott, in the back, or the striking juxtaposition of what happened just a few days ago at the National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, where white nationalists were acquitted, even though they had posted on social media that they had committed the crime in question, which was taking weapons onto a federal facility. At the same time, in North Dakota, Native Americans defending their land in the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Nation were routed and arrested. Now, even progressive people refused to acknowledge that that kind of juxtaposition, that is to say, white nationalists wielding weapons, getting a pat on the back, while indigenous populations are routed, that that kind of ju juxtaposition is not new in 2016. That juxtaposition and microcosm represents what has happened in North America for centuries. How do you think this land was taken? I mean, through, uh, I mean, do you think people were invited here to sort of take people's land? It was taken through force and violence. And right now, the United States is about to endure a reckoning. Uh, irrespective of who wins the presidential election, there's, there's going to be a reckoning in this country because even people on the left have been seduced by mythology and myths, and that apparently has, quote, worked, unquote, for oh so many years, but now it seems to me that that particular approach is about to hit the wall. Hearing you being interviewed on Democracy Now! a couple of months ago, and you mentioned something that I would like to explore, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I heard was that there was a correlation between um, the, um, I guess, the banning of slavery in in Britain or in England and the independence of the U.S. that it, that that one of the reasons the the U.S. broke away from the British Empire was because they wanted to keep slaves and they were working on uh, abolishing slavery in Europe. Is that correct? That's largely correct, and that's uh, a replica in many ways of what I enunciated just a moment or two ago. But let me add a further gloss. Uh, first of all, uh, I've been spending some time looking at the liberation of Algeria from French colonialism in 1962. And one of the things that strikes me is that, as you probably know, there was a settlers' revolt in Algeria. That is to say, French settlers were hotly opposed to the independence of Algeria, and there were 500,000 French military forces in Algeria. And when Charles de Gaulle, the leader of France, seemed to be making moves to accept Algerian independence, the settlers moved to try to eliminate Charles de Gaulle himself. I mean, France made the blunder of training this force and putting them in Algeria and giving them certain benefits and Of course, you should also know that these settlers uh, largely sided with the Vichy regime, the Nazi-backed regime that occupied France beginning in 1940. Uh, that is to say, these French in Algeria did not side with Charles de Gaulle and the Free French. They sided 
with the Germans, and that, of course, was not forgotten by de Gaulle, which gave him further impetus to cut the legs out from under them. But I, I, I go through Algeria because settlers' revolts by European settlers generally are not progressive trends. There was a settlers' revolt in what is now Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, November 1965. And you may know that uh, the settlers in Rhodesia revolted because they thought Britain was moving towards abolition of slavery, excuse me, abolition of colonialism, leading to one person, one vote in African majority rule, just like they said that they were walking in the footsteps of 1776, since those in 1776 in North America revolted against London because they felt London was moving against slavery. Uh, that is to say, Somerset's case already made reference to in June 1772. So, uh, the settlers' revolts uh, are, are generally not progressive developments, and it's really quite shocking and stunning, quite frankly, that progressive people in North America have not seen this simple elementary truth. I think that assuming that climate change does not overcome us all, uh, your grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, when they come to write this history, will be shocked and stunned by this myopia on the part of progressive people. And I think they may come to the conclusion, because historians, one of our jobs is to try to explain events and not just describe events, they may come to the conclusion that people were so seduced by the alleged benefits delivered by U.S. imperialism, after all, Food is relatively cheap in this country compared to other countries. Uh, energy is relatively cheap compared to other countries. Inflation is low compared to other countries. And that blinded them to the bitter and atrocious historical atrocities that led to the creation of this nation now known as the United States of America. I'm a first-generation immigrant from Mexico, and when I attended college at the University of Houston, one of the... Uh, history professors was talking about all the exploits and all the injustices that the U.S. as a country has committed on different populations throughout history. And it was funny to see that the majority of the students were uh, of minority groups or not typical, you know, American settler descendants. And, and the professor was white. But it was interesting that there was this like like momentum that was being created with just bringing up all the destruction and mayhem that, that brought about this country. On the other hand, coming from a third world country that is also very oppressive and has been under, I guess you can call it occupation from the Spanish since um, you know 500 years ago. But even before when the Aztecs were there, it was a very oppressive place as well. There's still this idea that, well, things are bad over here, but they're worse back home, or they're, they might be terrible, but at least you can survive, at least you can get a job and take care of your family. How do we look at the big picture? How do we balance? And, and what I see is that this country has a tension between the imperialistic uh, longings of, of some groups and the democratic system that was established and it's a push and pull between both is it a, a, a dire situation or there's still hope for america to live to its expectation i think you have to make a distinction uh, 
between, for example, the indigenous population and the African population and migrants who have come to this nation now known as the United States of America. The indigenous population were defeated militarily. They were subjected to genocide. The African population was stolen from Africa, kidnapped, put in chains, brought across the Atlantic to work for free for centuries. Now, I understand why somebody fleeing Latin America, fleeing Europe, fleeing Asia, they get to the United States and they say, oh, my God, I'm so happy to be here. I mean, I know it's an imperialist country, but I escaped depression. But those people got to have enough sympathy and sense to see the history of this country and how it was built. And they should not expect African people and indigenous people to have the same sympathy that they might have to this imperialist monster. And that is part of the problem. Until people are able to cross that barrier of understanding and understand history. I mean, it reminds me, I'm doing work on Southern Africa right now. And uh, the history of Southern Africa is very similar to the history of North America. What's striking is that if you had people migrating to South Africa from Europe, which many did, uh, for example, Joe Slovo, who was one of Nelson Mandela's comrades, uh, his roots were in the Lithuanian Jewish community, which, of course, was subjected to genocide by Hitler. And, of course, because he was melanin deficient, that is to say because he was, quote, white, unquote, he would have certain benefits in South Africa that he might not necessarily enjoy in Lithuania. But that did not lead Joe Slovo to say, oh my goodness, I'm so happy to be in South Africa out of Lithuania. I mean, yeah, I know that they have problems in South Africa, but boy, I'm so happy to be out of Lithuania because after all, my, my folks there were subjected to genocide. No, instead he joined Nelson Mandela and the oppressed Africans in trying to overthrow apartheid. He had no illusions about the so-called democracy for whites only, that was delivered in South Africa, just like I don't think we should have any illusions about the so-called democracy that has been delivered in North America. I mean, to call this country democratic is like calling apartheid democratic, because it had democracy for whites only. I reject that particular idea. I know that um, when we talk about current events and what's happening with the Native American community and the African American community, it appears that there is a social Darwinism that is in place. When I first came to the country, we were reading statistics about the number of African Americans, the number of Latinos. The number of African Americans hasn't changed since the 90s, you know, comparing the population, and then the number of Latinos has only increased a little bit. So I started wondering... Is there like a, a plan to purposely keep the population under control? Do you see that there's like a nefarious plan to incarcerate, to send them to the to war by enlisting them in the military as cannon fodder? Do you see those things or is that would be too much of a conspiracy? Yeah, I know the idea of conspiracy has a bad odor in certain circles, but I think if that's going to be the case, the idea of coincidence should have an even worse odor. I mean, see what has befallen, say, the African and indigenous population as some sort of happenstance, uh, mistake, coincidence. 
I think would be uh, terribly short-sighted. When you talked about people being fodder for war, for example, my mind reeled back to South America and Argentina in particular. That is to say, at the end of the 18th century, this South American nation had a substantial population of African descent. In fact, the roots of the national dance, the what we call the tango, has its roots in the African population. But by the end of the 19th century, that population had largely, quote, disappeared, unquote. And one of the reasons was war. But that was only one of the reasons. Part of the reason, of course, was atrocious conditions. When we look at um, the black nationalist uh, movements or the Chicano nationalist movements, um, they're usually caricatured as angry people who are not assimilated or involved in, in the greater world where they're trying to be separatists, they're trying to create um, a utopia. Even myself running into uh, Latinos that that have a great love for, for Mexico and, and they've never been there, and me coming from Mexico and saying things are better over here overall. Can can you give us a, a history of, of why was it important for African Americans to to reclaim their culture, to become more united, to be able to defend themselves, to be able to share their history in their own terms? And and what are the positive aspects of that that are available from history as compared to the way that people react towards anybody being a Black Panther or lifting up their fists? Like, there's easy ways for the media and the people who, who stand against that to just ridicule that. What can you tell us that is heroic and something that, that everybody can connect with from from that history? Well, first of all, I mean, people who take that sort of pinched, narrow point of view that you just articulated usually uh, don't take that point of view consistently. What I mean is that oftentimes these same people who have a problem of sorts with black nationalism, they don't have a problem with Zionism. Uh, as a matter of fact, I find interesting in the United States right now that there is a rethinking of the concept of free speech. Traditionally in the United States, at least for the last few decades, the idea has been, well, let everything rip, even hate speech, because we should we should confront so-called bad speech with more speech. And that's because they thought that the major targets of that sort of outrage were, say, black people in particular. And so, therefore, they were willing to take this sort of, quote, liberal, unquote, position with regard to speech. But now, with the Trump phenomenon and the rise of the alt-right, as it's called, and the surge of anti-Semitism, particularly directed against uh, Jewish reporters, such as at the New York Times, there's a rethinking of this question of free speech. I mean, like, it's not just the Jewish population. I mean, look at Canada, for example. After the British defeated the French in 1763, removing the threat that the French in Quebec would aid the Africans, for example, in New York, which they consistently did, for example, in the major slave revolt in New York in 1712, uh, what was left behind was a French-speaking population. And, of course, they've been very nationalist in terms of defending their language rights, Of course, France is officially bilingual, excuse me, Canada is officially bilingual. Uh, Many of the prime ministers either are 
native speakers are French or they learn uh, French like Stephen Harper, the conservative, before the present uh, prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who, of course, was naturally uh, bilingual. And people in the United States don't have a necessary problem with Quebecois nationalism. As a matter of fact, you have a lot of people in the United States who would like to see Quebecois nationalism go to its logical conclusion and lead to a split of Quebec from Anglo-Canada, because then, of course, that would weaken Canada and would allow U.S. nationals to establish a firmer foothold there. So I really don't take seriously these critiques of black nationalism and, you know, so-called separatism, because it's not consistent. You know, what, what these people are really concerned about is maintaining white supremacy. They feel that black nationalism challenges and threatens white supremacy. They're interested in maintaining this uh, rather... Uh, mythological view of the past. They're concerned about maintaining racial privilege and white privilege. And that is what's undergirding this so-called concern about black nationalism. So I really don't take it very seriously at all. Can you give us a brief um, history of black nationalism? Um, I read about uh, Garvey and other um, heroes of the movement, but can you tell us What was the main uh, goal? Was it reclaiming their culture or was it more like becoming independent since they felt that it was hard to survive in a, in a white world? Well, I, I think there are various strands. I think that if you go back to the 17th century, for example, and keep in mind that the slave trade really takes off in the 17th century, you will find that many of the Africans in North America were interested in controlling North America, oftentimes in alignment with an indigenous peoples and a major foreign patron. Originally, as I said, that was aligning with Spain against Britain, and then it was aligning with Britain against the settlers. And then, as it seems, as is the case today, that the settlers have established hegemony in North America, then that has led to what you see in the 20th century. You mentioned Marcus Garvey and this idea, for example, of leaving North America, repatriating to Africa. It has led to this idea of uh, more self-determination and control over black neighborhoods, for example, in North America. But if you just focus on those latter points, and ignore the roots in the 17th century where the struggle was really about controlling North America as a whole, then I think you'll miss the big picture, and then you, or perhaps your grandchildren, will be surprised when that 17th century trend has a resurgence, which I'm sure it will, sometime in the 21st century. Going back to social Darwinism, do you feel that there is... Um Is it just a culture of discrimination and demonization of black people in America by the the majority, or is it more of a of a purposeful um, neglecting of the neighborhoods, um, hunting down people and, and criminalizing them, um, creating um, a system that is um, you know a racist from from within is it something that is um that is manipulated to to bring it about or is it just carelessness that 
that creates this difficult situation for minorities in the U.S.? Well, I think what happens is that you set up certain structures in the 18th century. For example, a slaveholder's republic based upon mass enslavement of Africans and dispossession of the indigenous. And then that develops a momentum all of its own that carries forward to the 21st century, which can lead to the illusion that what has befallen the indigenous and the Africans is somehow carelessness or a mistake or a blunder, as opposed to the logical working out of a system that was created centuries ago. Obviously, I'm persuaded that the latter is at play. It seems to me that a powerful country, the self-proclaimed richest power on earth, the self-proclaimed superpower, when they see what has befallen the indigenous populations and the African populations and then don't do anything about it. In fact, try to say that it's actually the, the fault of, of the victims. You know, it's blaming the victims. You know, Negroes need to work a bit harder. They need to put some Elgropo grease in, on their, in their hands or something and pull up their bootstraps. Uh, the Native Americans, uh, they got too many problems they need to deal with. I mean, you know, it, it's ludicrous. I mean, I think what you're really seeing ultimately is the cruel working out of a system not only based on white supremacy, but a system of capitalism uh, based upon the exploitation of labor, particularly cheap labor, particularly the cheap labor of darker skinned peoples, and then trying to rationalize that by suggesting, well, the reason why these darker skinned people are at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid is because of their own frailties and their own debilities as opposed to the system. Now, I think people have a choice. They can either blame the individuals or they can blame the system. And that's usually what separates uh, radicals from the rest of us. Is there a divide and conquer, um, again, going back to maybe not a conspiracy, but um, um, a policy that creates conflict among minorities as well? Um, you know, during different debates about the legacy of uh, President Obama on Democracy Now! and other shows, there's a divide between, um, I guess, establishment um, African-American leaders who feel that if if there is going to be change, positive change for minorities in the U.S., we have to work through the system, we have to give Obama a chance, we have to help him, you know, compromise and, and work with what he has. And then what they would call more radical elements where they would say that it doesn't matter that he is uh, a representative of the African-American community, that if he's not fighting for um, the rights of the poor and, and really helping um, the people that he represents, he's actually uh, becoming so institutionalized that, that he's no good to the people that they were hoping he would bring about change. Um do you think that um, those are fair arguments or there's no point in even discussing that because it's pretty much like some people say it's already rigged and set up and, and there's nothing you can do to, to bring about positive change? 
Well, first of all, of course, there are class divisions within the black community of the United States of America. And those class divisions have become more pronounced in recent decades. Although, despite the fact of those class divisions, there is an underlying unity in this community because irrespective of class background, there is still a certain kind of persecution and oppression. What I mean is, is that police officers oftentimes are more prone to harass a black person driving a Mercedes because they conflict with that officer's idea of the structure of society and the hierarchy of society, as opposed to driving, for example, a, a jalopy. Or one can say that a police officer equally uh, harasses one in a jalopy and one in a Mercedes, or similarly harasses, and that drives an underlying unity. The problem is, is that in the past few decades, the United States has had this red scare and this Cold War, which has led to the routing of those who think along class lines. And what that has meant is that the black poor oftentimes have not had spokespersons and leaders who speak cogently and explicitly in their interests. Oftentimes because of this red scare and cold war, which, for example, led to the persecution of uh, black labor leaders of the left. I've written books about them, like Ferdinand Smith of the National Maritime Union, or comrades of his like Paul Robeson, the great actor and singer. Uh, this has meant that middle class elements have dominated the conversation and dominated the discourse and dominated the leadership. And because this is the case in a hostile environment, it's oftentimes been difficult for the black poor and even the black working class, which of course is part of the black poor to a degree, to speak out in their own interests. But once again, a reckoning is coming to these shores, and I think that sooner rather than later, we're going to see that particular status quo disrupted. Who do you see as a, as, as a good leader within the African-American community nowadays? Because um, when, when talking of, of, about Hispanic leaders uh, in Houston, a, a friend of mine was saying that it's hard to find le his leaders from our community that are not caught stealing with a mistress or discredited in some other way. And it seems like something similar happens with uh, African-American leaders to take away the, their power or their ability to, to lead, or in the worst-case scenario, they end up assassinated like Martin Luther King. Who do you see now as, as someone who's fear, fearlessly representing um, the voices of people in the African-American community that need someone to to be the spokesperson? That's a very difficult question to answer, not least because of what you made reference to in the body of your remarks, that is to say the persecution and the harassment up to and including assassination of political leaders. Plus, it's a relative question. I mean, for example, with regard to uh, Congress, the U.S. Congress in Washington, D.C., you have 
progressive, the most progressive members of that body are, generally speaking, the black and brown leaders. Raul Grijalva, for example, of Arizona, uh, or even someone like John Conyers of Detroit, who's been in Congress for over a half century. Relative to Congress, I think that there are progressive leaders. Now, I think that the problem, for example, with the Congressional Black Caucus is that, like most of the black leadership, they have been relatively mute on pressing questions of foreign policy and pressing questions of imperialist intervention. I mean, now, to be sure, many of them spoke out on the uh, war in Iraq, uh, spring of 2003, or even Congresswoman Barbara Lee spoke out against the war in Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. But it would be a mistake to see those particular examples as illustrative of the leadership class in general. And I do think that we need new voices of leadership. I mean, let me give you a reason why. Uh, Just a few days ago in Los Angeles, uh, there was a meeting at the L.A. County Museum of Art where China's richest man, a billionaire, who controls AMC theaters, which are probably uh, represented in Nashville, came to speak to Hollywood Titans because he's wanting to buy a studio to make films. And already China's the second biggest market for Hollywood studios and is on its way to being the leading market. And he said that in the future, as he laid down the law, He wanted to see more Chinese actors and Asian actors and more Asian themes and Chinese themes and movies. This did not go down very well in Hollywood. Keep in mind that Hollywood is not only a profit center, it's not only a place where consciousness is massaged. I mean, Hollywood basically exports the so-called American way of life. It's a form of propaganda, in other words. But it's also a way to knit together alliances. You should not see it as accidental that some of the leading stars, Nicole Kidman of Australia, Russell Crowe of New Zealand, Australia, Michael Caine of Britain, Charlize Theron of South Africa, Charlotte Rampling of France and England, uh, come from abroad. Because this is a way to knit together an international community. Uh, and and perhaps not coincidentally, an international community of whiteness, although uh, some might point to Lupita Nyong'o of uh, Kenya, who, by the way, was born in Mexico, although she's of African descent, of Kenyan descent, or David Oyelowo, who played Martin Luther King in the movie Selma. But in any case, this whole idea of the rise of China, which is going to contribute to a looming confrontation across the Pacific, between the United States and China, is real. One of the differences between the two major candidates for U.S. president is that Hillary Rodham Clinton is taking a Russia-first policy, that is to say, confront Russia first, and then with Russia under your belt, with a Yeltsin-type administration replacing Putin, then you can turn to uh, Beijing, where Donald J. Trump takes a China-first policy. Uh, slapping high tariffs on Chinese exports, which, by the way, would really disrupt the international capitalist economic system. I say all this to say that where are the 
critical leaders, not only black leaders, but where are the left-wing leaders of any ancestry speaking out on these issues? And so if I were to do a critique of deficiencies in black leadership, I'd be forced to do a critique of deficiencies in leadership generally. Well, let's talk about how liberalism or the progressive movement is seen as the best avenue for uh, minority groups to be able to be represented. Um, I've heard from some traditionalists within minority groups say that uh, as much as the progressive movement can help in giving everybody equal footing, there are things that that work against um, some elements within minorities that are more conservative, maybe not politically, but uh, morally or religiously. So um, is there a divide within the black community uh, with people who are uh, religious? Um, you know, the, the example that they use had to do with, well, if you're super liberal, um, you're going to have trouble. Um, if you support liberalism, but you're a religious person, you're going to have trouble with the public school system because they're amoral in the way that they, they teach whatever. And then you're going to have problems with uh, f uh, issues with family planning. And you're going to have trouble with issues on uh, other social issues. So what they were trying to say is that if you are a minority person who has strong held beliefs, liberalism, uh, even though gives opportunity for different voices, they also there's a liberal fallacy that they agree with everyone. They love everyone as long as they agree with them. So if anybody is a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew, uh, a Rastafarian, or any of those groups that they might have more conservative views about women, about gays, about raising of children, that they're going to be faced with moral issues when they go down to vote, when they go down to a protest, and they're going to be divided. Do you see that as, as an issue, or is that just another way of being divided and being and creating false conflict within a group that needs to stick together? Well, I think it's an issue, but I don't see it as an ultimate issue. It, it, it's just like I was describing the so-called white evangelists, who are supposed to be so concerned with morals. They're so concerned about the unborn and abortion, etc. But when they decided to throw in their lot with Donald J. Trump, what they exposed and revealed was that what they're really concerned about is white supremacy, which is why Trump's attacks on people of Mexican origin struck such a resonant chord with them, and why Trump's attacks on Muslims struck such a resonant chord because they're really interested in bigotry. And so likewise, with regard to black religious forces, there are those who may have some reservations, for example, about same-sex marriage, or they may have even reservations about women's reproductive freedom. But what they're really concerned about, <laughs> like they're melon-deficient uh, co-religionists, is white supremacy. And so therefore, you don't necessarily, you, you, you don't see the, any of these black religious forces, of which there are many, necessarily voting for the Republican right. That's what the re white religious forces vote for, is the Republican right. And I dare say that 
if by some stroke of fate the United States begins to move to the left beyond the, beyond the narrow confines of the Democratic Party, and I should also say beyond the narrow confines of liberalism itself, that many of these black religious forces will vote for those forces that move to the left, even though they may have these moral concerns about things like gay marriage or abortion. Because what is really animating them is not necessarily these moral concerns. What's animating them is the fact that they may be taking their life into their hands every time they go outside. Because a trigger-happy cop drunk on the fumes of white supremacy will put a bullet through their brain. And that's sufficient to concentrate their minds wonderfully. And it's also sufficient to denude them of the illusion that these moral concerns should take presence over everything else. Let's talk about the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, do you feel that it is well organized and is effective in, in their protest? Or is it similar to the Occupy movement that since part of, of its purpose is not to have a, one leader and not to have only one issue, they talk about many issues, that it, that it might fizzle out with time? Or is it building a momentum and is creating new leaders in its wake? Well, that's a very good question, and I think it's a bit of both. I mean, generally speaking, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been a breath of fresh air. However, if it's to reach its full potential, two things will have to happen, which will both require that BLM step up its game. One is that it will have to do international outreach. It will have to take advantage of the fact that there is considerable support in the international community for BLM and the cause that they represent. That's, I mean, all you have to do is look at what the United Nations has been saying of late about reparations for descendants of enslaved Africans in North America and what United Nations bodies have been saying about the kind of terrorism inflicted by police departments on black people. There has been some of that kind of outreach, but in order for that outreach to be effective and consistent, BLM, I think, is going to have to combine its decentralized present thrust with at least a bit of centralizing. What I mean is that there probably needs to be a national convention. There probably needs to be some sort of leadership, national leadership. And I know why that hasn't taken place, because usually what happens is that when you have national leadership, the right wing moves to decapitate it immediately, if not sooner. And so organizations become decentralized. Uh, so you can't decapitate any national leaders. But if you don't have any sort of national organization and national leaders and national conventions with a consistent national message, the decentralizing will eventually wither on the vine. And I think that's what happened to the Occupy movement. But so, that, so therein you see this dilemma. That is to say, you can develop this national thrust and then run the risk of it being decapitated, or you can stay decentralized and run the risk of withering on the vine. Therein lies the present dilemma 
of Black Lives Matter. What do um, spokesperson for spokespeople for the Black Lives Matters movement have to do to bring the narrative back to its roots and its real issues that it wants to address, as compared to it being overrun by false accusations of wanting to uh, attack police officers, wanting to destroy property, wanting to create chaos and anarchy in the world. What has to happen for the message to stay pure in the eyes of the public? I know Martin Luther King was really good at using the media to get the message out. What would have to happen for the Black Lives Matter movement to, to gain momentum in the eyes of all society in the U.S.? Well, first of all, given the present right-wing tilt of the United States of America, and not least its American majority, it's inevitable at the moment that Black Lives Matter is going to be subjected to defamation, ridicule, slander, and worse that comes with the territory in a country like this. However, once again, I do think that there is room for improvement. I mean, for example, uh, if there is some sort of national leadership, then you then develop a press committee and a PR committee that delivers a fine-tuned national message, particularly aimed at the international community. I have to keep stressing that because as a historian, I know that slavery was abolished in a place like Tennessee, not only because of the actions of people in Tennessee, but also because there was an international movement. For example, the Haitian Revolution, which was the subject of one of my recent books, which created a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with that system's collapse. Likewise, Jim Crow, uh, which, of course, was quite bountiful in Tennessee, uh, was only pushed back due to international support. That is to say, this conflict between Moscow and Washington, with the United States trying to accuse the former Soviet Union of human rights violations, but finding it difficult to do so as long as Jim Crow obtained on these shores. Uh, this meant that Jim Crow had to go. One of the problems we face today that has led to this spate of police killings is that the right wing is not under sufficient pressure from the international community. That's why you have the video of the week of some black man being strangled or shot by a police officer. And in order for that outrage, that obscenity, to cease, we're going to have to have an international movement. It's not enough just to have a domestic movement. And that's my message to Black Lives Matter, which I'm sure the more militant and progressive elements in the ranks already know that. Well, let's talk about that term militant. It's usually... Um, depicted in a negative way, same with the word radical. What is the true definition of militant within um, these movements? Well, first of all, I mean, those who've been paying attention to what I've been saying for the past hour, or those who've read even a few paragraphs in the books that I've written, will know that there has been atrocity visited upon the African population and the indigenous population in the first place. And in order to halt those atrocities, or at least bring those atrocities down to decrease them, there has had to be confrontation. 
There has had to be militancy. You have to get in people's face and wag your finger in their face and perhaps take even more aggressive steps. This is what I mean by militancy. And militancy is a sine qua non. It's essential. It's required. It's mandatory. And uh, there should be no apologies for being militant. What What do you think about the two approaches? Uh, the one taken by, you know, we're going to just use the, the figureheads or the, the, the common heroes of both movements. So people try to portray as Malcolm X as when he was most militant as an example of um, African-American um, groups becoming, um, being willing to use violence to defend themselves. And then you have the civil rights Martin Luther King movement uh, being extreme pacifist. Is that an accurate depiction or is, is that just a, an extreme uh, black and white perspective that, that historians mainstream historians have been trying to portray? Well, I will say that the movement to push back against Jim Crow and white supremacy has involved a, an entire menu of strategies and tactics, amongst which have been those encapsulated in the figures of Dr. King and Malcolm X. I don't think that the pushback against white supremacy would have gained traction unless you had a certain kind of confrontational and militant edge. And likewise, I think that the King movement was useful in attracting masses of various ancestries. But I think, once again, that that particular dyad, the King-Malcolm dyad, leaves out the missing link, which is the link represented by a person like Paul Robeson, who I wrote a book about that came out this year. That is to say that had mass support, but particularly international mass support, who was particularly capable of appealing to an international community and thereby subverting and overriding right-wing bias that too often obtains amongst all too many in the population of the United States of America. Last question. Um, what went wrong in the last, I guess, 40, 50 years? There seemed to be a momentum with the civil rights movement. How did it get turned around and a decline in civil rights and social uh, programs and the ability for people to be equal. Um, how did that um, go down in into what it is now? For one thing, the international pressure retreated. Uh, this was a particular result of the collapse of the socialist camp uh, after 1989 which in turn led to this era of globalization when millions of workers in Eastern Europe were brought into the capitalist world and thereby were able to compete with workers on this side of the Atlantic, driving down the wages and living standards of both groups of workers, 
This had a particularly pernicious impact upon black workers who were at the bottom of the ladder in any case. So, as you may have gathered from my remarks, this globalization has been a two-edged sword because this globalization was accompanied by a simultaneous rout of left-wing forces, of class-conscious forces, which left the working class, in particular the black working class, noticeably defenseless. And that has made the white working class particularly susceptible to the right-wing populist blandishments of one Donald J. Trump. And you may see the results of that on Tuesday, November 8th. That particular strategy was also accompanied by an entente with China where it was thought that if China could be brought into an anti-Moscow alliance, that that would lead to the decline of the Soviet Union. And of course, that proved to be true. The problem from the point of view of U.S. imperialism was that China had ideas and dreams all of its own, and that went far beyond just being a source of cheap labor for U.S.-based transnational corporations to the point now where China, in many ways, has been the ultimate victor of globalization. And that's where we stand right now. The U.S. ruling class now faces the prospect of a Donald J. Trump presidency, A, or a Hillary Clinton presidency, which will lead to a particularly dangerous confrontation with Russia. Those are unappetizing choices, to put it mildly. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.